Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, excuse me, verses 17 through 18. Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18. We continue to look at the question that we've been looking at for several weeks now. Why did God become man? We believe in the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we confess the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is both God and man. He is the God-man. Why did God have to become man? Well, the text this morning answers that question and continues to answer that question. So let us hear the Word of God and get straight to the text. In verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. We begin by seeing a clear statement in verse 17 of the humanity of Christ. It continues to go in then to the priesthood of Christ. And it finally concludes with the temptation of Christ. So we see the humanity of Christ, the priesthood of Christ, and the temptation of Christ. And you see the humanity of Christ in verse 17. It begins with the word, therefore. Therefore is concluding everything that has been stated prior to it. And verses 17 and verse 18 are really a summary of everything that's been stated about Christ up until this point. And so you can look at these final two verses as just a summary of everything we've talked about. We're not going to learn anything new this morning. It's just simply summarizing everything that has been said. But it does, as a result of that, bring out some different aspects or different angles to what's been said. So therefore, it is the introduction to the summary statement of who Christ is. What we read in chapter 1 is Christ is fully God. Chapter 2 deals primarily with His humanity, that He became man. And when you get to verse 17, it's really the climax and summary of everything preceding it. So why did God become man? And just asking that question seems so simple. God become man? That is an unanswerable question. That is an incomprehensible thing for us. We can't even grasp God became man. Why did the plan of salvation have to involve the unthinkable, incomprehensible truth that eternal, unchanging God would take upon himself true humanity. Well, he had to. The text says it. Therefore, look what it says, therefore he had to. Now that's an interesting statement. 
Because it tells us that it was actually necessary. There was a necessity that Christ would take on a true humanity, but because it says he had to, it also indicates that this was an eternal plan. What do I mean by that? You see throughout Scripture statements such as this, that before the foundations of the world were laid, he had predestined a people for himself. Christ speaks of in, in Luke chapter 22, his father covenanting a kingdom to him. When did his father covenant a kingdom to him? Well, there's a couple things we have to ask about God. Is, is God eternal? Yes. And are we in time? Yes. Does God change? No. Do we change all the time? God doesn't plan things in time. And what I mean by that is this, is uh, God doesn't come up with a plan in response to your human action. If God made a plan according to your decisions or your changing, what would that make God then? One who's constantly changing and then dependent upon us to create a plan. I didn't see that one coming, I better change the plan real quick. God doesn't do that with us. His plan is an eternal plan. And specifically, the plan was that our triune God eternally planned. Specifically, we see the Father, out of love for the world, would send His Son. You think of John 3.16. And then the Son would be conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit and be born in Bethlehem. That was an eternal plan of God. The text tells us this, therefore, he had to. And specifically, he had to become man. You say how this is connected. He had to be made. That is made, he became something he was not. Philippians says it this way, that he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. So everything that we have seen, that Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact nature of God, the eternal Son of God, takes on flesh. It tells us he is like his brothers in every respect. He becomes something he wasn't. He took on human nature. And it qualifies this. Well, what does it mean that he took on human nature? Like his brothers in every respect. All that is man is what Christ took on, yet without ceasing to be God. There's the incomprehensible act of it. God can never cease to be God. So when Jesus takes on human flesh, he doesn't become part God and part man. He's truly God. He's truly man. All the properties that belong to being God remain in the Son, and all the properties of humanity He assumed the same nature. What does that mean? As the text will make clear, temptations. Suffering. Yet the divine, God cannot suffer. God cannot be tempted. God does not experience temptations, but yet the person Jesus does. 
So what we see here, we just shouldn't read past it, but sit and meditate and think about the glory of what God does in condescending to become man because we see the wonderful mystery of the incarnation. And the context here is explaining why God became man. It says he had to. So you might think this every now and then, and when it comes to Easter time or when it comes to Christmas, if you wonder, why did God have to become man? Why did, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? What, was there another way God could have saved man? What does the text say? He had to. He had to be made like his brother. So explicitly, Scripture teaches it had to be this way. It had to be this way that Jesus takes on human flesh. Why? It's specifically, we see here, because he becomes a priest. What does a priest do? A priest represents people. And in order to represent a people, you must become one with them. One commentator says this, priestly intercession demands identification with those on whose behalf the priest intervenes with God. For their shared nature qualifies the priest to act as their representative, while their shared experience of suffering enriches his sympathy for them in their trial. So why did he become man? So that he might share in the nature, same nature as us, to represent man, but then also experience the same things we experience and show us sympathy. And when you think about that, Jesus, by taking on flesh, represents us before God. I don't know about you, but I, I think of our system of government. We, we're in a republic, and we have representatives that are supposed to represent us before the whole people, right? And you think about that for a second. How often do you really feel connected to one of your representatives? Do you really think that they have any idea what it's like to be you? It doesn't seem that way, does it? In fact, we see a little bit of an unfairness. Why is it that so many get away with crimes and get away with things? I don't get away with those things. I didn't get a warning on when I should buy stock or not stock and enrich myself. You think, that person doesn't really represent me. That's the way you feel about it, don't you? I certainly do. But here's the beauty of Christ is this right here. He was made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect, he experienced the same struggles that are common to you. He experienced the same temptations that are common to you. Christ is not like our representatives that we have in a fallible government. Christ became like his brothers in every respect. You ever been tired? You ever been hungry? You ever been mocked? You ever been rejected? You ever been treated unfairly? You ever been wrongly accused? You ever suffered? You ever faced temptation? In every respect, he was made like his brothers. In every respect, 
Him taking on human flesh, He experienced everything you have experienced. No one has ever come from so high to such a lowly position as Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who left all the glories of heaven to experience pain, suffering, hunger, and temptations. The same things that you and I experience throughout our life. He experienced them all, but even in a more profound manner. Christ becomes one with His people in all respects except sin, which means He felt those things to a degree that we cannot even experience. This is what He does in becoming our high priest, that He might represent us before His Father. And this is where we see the idea of uh, priesthood come. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That is the same shared nature as us. So that, hang on those words, when when you're doing Bible study and you see the word so that, that's telling you here's the purpose. Here's why he did it. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God so that he could be this. We've been told he had to, but the explanation is so that he would become a merciful and faithful high priest. That is why the eternal God takes on human flesh, that he could represent his people. He's not just any ordinary high priest, as later in Hebrews will teach us. He's not like a high priest that you could see in the Old Testament. They pointed to him. They gave examples of him. They were types of him. But there's something that separates him from every other high priest, and it's these two attributes of his priesthood. The first is merciful, and the second is that he is faithful. That is the type of high priest he has. He is merciful to us in that through the experience of taking on human form, taking on humanity, he can sympathize with us. So when you are experiencing any things that you experience that are common to humanity, you have one that is perfect without sin that can sympathize with what you're going through. And there's another thing, is that he was faithful. He was a faithful high priest, and that's where it separates him from every other high priest, because every other high priest had sin in their life. There was no other high priest that was perfect. Only Christ was perfect. He was faithful, which means he endured without faltering. It means he accomplished his job. He was faithful not only towards his father, as we see in chapter 3, verse 2, where it describes him who was faithful to him who appointed him. That is, the father appoints the son, the father sends the son, and the son is faithful to the father. What does Jesus say throughout the Gospel of John over and over again? I am here to accomplish my father's will. Jesus was faithful. But he wasn't only faithful towards the Father, he was also faithful for his people. Both are required in order for us to have salvation. 
He had to be faithful to his father, fulfilling all righteousness. But he was also faithful for his people. And here's how we see it. He was a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He was faithful in making propitiation. Now, what is propitiation? Propitiation is one of those words you come across in the Bible, and we're going to look at the instances where we come across that Bible, and you go, what does that mean? And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you would feel comfortable if you had to give a definition for the word propitiation, could you do it? The King James Version translates the word for propitiation to make reconciliation. The NIV translates the word for propitiation to make atonement. Some translations don't say propitiation, but say expiation. So what does this word mean? I think the idea is make reconciliation, make atonement is there, but the actual word is not a group of words, the word is propitiation. We see the word propitiation throughout Scripture. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, Paul makes an argument about propitiation. In chapter 3, verse 25, he says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Speaking of the Father, putting forth the Son as a propitiation. In 1 John, in chapter 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. Now again, it's one of those words that's hard to, hard to understand. When was the last time you used the word propitiate? Unless you were reading one of these chapters, likely you didn't. And so it's a, verse, or it's a word that we're uncomfortable with. But here's what it specifically means. It means to appease or to pardon. It means to appease or to pardon. That's a very simplistic definition of it. And you see examples of that appeasement idea of the way that word can be translated in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 14 says, A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. I want to draw those two things out there. It says a king's wrath, and then it says, but a wise man can appease. Appease what? The king's wrath. So it's that idea of appeasing. Appeasing what? Wrath. You see another example of it that might help us to understand what this word propitiation means. In the story of Jacob and Esau, If you remember, Jacob was somewhat of a swindler, and he swindled his brother out of his inheritance. And uh, his brother was angry at him, wanted to kill him. Esau wanted to kill Jacob. And they're about ready to meet up again. And Jacob's frightened about meeting with his brother. He thinks actually his brother might try to take his life. In other words, he, he has in his mind... Esau has wrath that is going to be upon me. 
And so we read this interesting little phrase or verse in Genesis 32:20. It says, "Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought I may appease him." with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face, perhaps he will accept me. In other words, Jacob sends these presents to Esau that he might propitiate him, appease him. That's the idea of propitiation. There's anger, and if I can do something It will appease that anger. In human relationships, we can make that happen, right? In human relationships, it's very simple for us. For instance, if I provoke your wrath, I can just simply go to you and say, you know, I'm really sorry for that, and that will usually appease a person, right? But we're talking about a holy God. We're talking about a holy God. Now, because this word propitiation is not a common word we use, because it's translated so many different ways, that means that it's oftentimes debated. And so what we understand it is is that God is appeased in the sacrifice of Christ. What does propitiation mean? God is appeased in the sacrifice of Christ. But it also means something else. And that is this. In that appeasement, there is a removal of sin from the one who was sinning. So, you'll see the word propitiation, sometimes translated propitiation, sometimes translated expiation. Propitiation means God's wrath has appeased. Expiation means God has removed our sin. Propitiation means both. God is appeased. My sin is removed. The Puritan John Owen makes these four points about it. They're very simple. He says, in propitiation and appeasement of God's wrath and removal of sins, he says that there has to be these four things, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, there has to be a crime that was committed that is to be taken away. He says there has to be an offended person. So there has to be a crime to be taken away. There has to be one that was offended. And if there was one offended, that means there has to be an offending party. So there's a crime that's going to be taken away. There's one that's committed that crime. And there's one that that crime was against. And there has to be a means of making reconciliation between the two parties. So in order for propitiation to take place, you have to have a crime, you have to have a person that has been offended, you have to have an offending person, and you have to have some sort of means of atonement in them. Some sort of means to bring about reconciliation. That's what's required in propitiation. And so what are the means of propitiation with God? Christ taking on human nature. Go back to the words he had to. He had to become like his brothers in every respect so that he might make propitiation. That's why he had to become flesh. That is why God had to become man, is to make propitiation. 
Christ, in taking on human nature, became a merciful and faithful high priest so that he would make propitiation. Have you ever asked, this is why it's so important to you and to me, have you ever asked, how could God love me? Ever wondered that? How could God love me? God's love in sending the Son is secured in propitiation. God's love for you is secured in that little word that's so difficult to understand, in propitiation. Propitiation might be the most important word in the Bible that we don't know. Because that's God's means of securing His love for you. That is God's means of making sure that you are saved. We have to understand why this is essential to the gospel. And here's what it is. is God is holy, God is just, and you and I are not. God is holy, God is just, and we are not. That is why we read of things that make us uncomfortable, like in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11, as I swore in my wrath. God is a wrathful God. We read in Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we see this statement here that God is a wrathful God and that His wrath is actually displayed on mankind. We read in chapter 2, verse 5 of Romans, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We don't like to hear that God is angry with sin. We don't like to read that God is wrathful, but it's unmistakably clear in Scripture. Sometimes we will maybe hear or read that wrath is an attribute of God. That's not exactly true. Wrath is actually the expression of God's justice. God is just. God is righteous. And the expression of His righteous judgment and justice is what we read as wrath. Sin must be accounted for, or God is not just. If we say, yes, God is just, but He's not wrathful, then we have misunderstood justice, haven't we? God is just, and that justice is expressed in His wrath. We are the sinful, fallen children of Adam, and we deserve that wrath. And here's where the picture begins to come full circle in Scripture about propitiation is this. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve it. Us humans. And because God is infinite, 
That means His justice is infinite, which we then understand when we see that hell is not just a, a little while. Hell's not like a thousand years and then He lets you out and you get your, your get-out-of-jail-free card. But it's an eternal hell because He is eternally just. Justice itself is eternally served by God. And so God Himself takes on human flesh as our representative. He lives perfectly, goes to the cross where the full wrath of God was poured out on His Son, and our sins were placed on the cross, thus removed, as we read in Colossians, nailing our sins to the cross. Propitiation is made. Christ suffers eternal hell on the cross in our place. He did that as man. If he did not do that as man, he didn't represent you. And if he didn't do it as God, he could not have suffered an eternal punishment. Thus propitiation is made in the cross. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus fulfill the plan of his Father perfectly? Yes. Did Jesus upon the cross experience the eternal and full wrath of God? Yes. Did he drink down to the dregs the cup being poured out upon him? Yes. Was his father satisfied in the work of his son? Yes. The father is satisfied in his son. That is propitiation. God is no longer wrathful towards those in Christ, but he is rather not angry with them, but he is for them. That is propitiation. God is for you. And here's the beauty as a high priest. He did this not for himself, but it says, for the sins of his people. This is covenantal language to see his people. Israel was always identified as his people. So this is covenantal language. And it teaches us that what was accomplished for those in the new covenant was a definite atonement that is accomplished with the definite removal of sin. That Christ takes that sin, and as He takes that sin, He takes that wrath of God, and He does it for His people. For the sins of His people. Not for His sins, for our sins. And there's two important things to consider about this. If you are in Christ, the beauty is this wrath has been taken. Praise God. Praise God. If you're in Christ... You don't have to fear God's judgment. You don't have to fear wrath. That's why the fear of death is gone. Despite our sin, Christ saved us. We are no longer under the wrath of God. But here's the other aspect of it is this, is if you have not trusted in Christ, you're not waiting for wrath. It tells us actually in Scripture that the wrath of God is currently on you. John chapter 3, verse 36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Has, that's a present active indicative, that is, you have it right now. 
But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, here's the word, remains on him. So either Christ has taken that wrath, or that wrath is on you right now. And it will be suffered for all of eternity. The good news is that the Son, the eternal Son of God, became a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of his people. His humanity was absolutely necessary to make this happen. But the good news doesn't stop there, that if you're in Christ, I want you to notice verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when being tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, not only do you have the security that you escape the wrath to come, but right now, what does it tell you that Jesus does for you? He helps you. Right now, Jesus helps you. If you're in Christ, it's not that you just receive Christ and then you go on your merry way and then one day you go to heaven. No, it is Christ is working in you right now and the Father is for you right now. Why? Because he faced suffering, he faced temptation, and he is able, because he experienced those same things you experienced, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You think of the wilderness of Christ where he is in the wilderness and Satan comes along to tempt him and how he defeated Satan in that. You think of his hour of darkness before the cross and he said, not my will, but your will be done. You think of the totality of his life. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, we read this of his temptation. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Here it is. For, for this reason, for, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's not unable to sympathize with your struggles. But one, that is Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see the connection. He helps us. How? He allows us to approach his throne of mercy and grace to come to him at any time. And when you're in temptation and when you're in suffering, he knows what you're going through. Now, what does it mean that Jesus was tempted? This is a debated issue. We have to understand that the temptations of Christ were like ours, but they weren't like ours. Because there's temptations that you and I face that are within. I might have a temptation that comes from within me, right? You have a temptation that comes from within you. An idea pops into your head that you would like to do something that you know is sinful. That's a, that's a temptation from within. 
But then there's those temptations that come from the outside where someone comes along or something comes before you that's put before you that might tempt you. Christ never was tempted from within. Christ was never tempted from within because he was the perfect sinless son of God. He didn't experience temptation from within. He faced temptation on the outside. That's important to note because if he had faced it from within, he would be guilty of breaking which commandment? The tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet, which is a sin of the heart, which is a sin of something that happens within us. Christ never suffered from within. He suffered on the outside. But yet you might think, well, then that's not true temptation. Yeah, it is. Has anything been put before your face before that tempted you? In fact, oftentimes when temptations come from within, you can quickly brush them apart. But when, it's, when something comes before us, when the temptation sometimes gets really real, yes, Christ truly was tempted. F.F. Bruce says, time and time again, the temptation came to him from many directions to choose some less costly way of fulfilling that calling than the way of suffering and death. You consider when Christ tells his apostles, I'm going to go to the cross and die, and Peter says, may it never be, Lord. That's a temptation from the outside. That was a temptation from the outside. And yet his temptation, while it never came from within, was always from the outside. His temptation was always greater than any temptation you and I will ever face. Leon Morris says this, The man who yields to a particular temptation has not yet felt its full power. In other words, when you're tempted and you give in to temptation, you haven't really felt the fullness of temptation yet. He has given in, going on, he has given in while the temptation has yet something in reserve. Only the man who does not yield to a temptation, who, as regards that particular temptation, is sinless, knows the full extent of that temptation. In other words, only one that is sinless can experience the fullness of temptation. Christ's temptations were infinitely greater than ours because he was sinless. John Murray says, it was his impeccable holiness that added intensity to the grief of temptation. For the holier a person is, the more excruciating is his encounter with the solicitation of the opposite. In the case of our Lord, this is true to an incomparable degree because he was perfect. In other words, you think of all the temptations we have, Christ's temptations were far greater, far more intense. And here's the beauty. Because as a man, he experienced temptation what does the text say? He is able to help those who are being tempted. When you find yourself in the wilderness and Satan whispering in your ear, you have one to look to that conquered Satan. 
When you're in the moment of the deepest, darkest hour, when you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, you have one who was there. And it says he has sympathy for you. His heart goes to you. Let me tell you something about temptation. Very practical. When tempted, look to Christ. You may go, that's obvious, that's very simple. But that's not what we do with our temptations, is it? What do we do when, we, when we're dealing with temptations? Don't we set up all sorts of boundaries and rules to help us through temptation? I'm not saying boundaries and things, rules are bad, but they are fallible. Here's the reality. Let me ask you this, a very simple way to put it in dealing with temptation. Does the law save you? Then how could the law sanctify you? It's not a bunch of law that we need to help us in temptation. It's the one who went through temptation to a far greater degree that we need in facing temptation. But what it is that we want, I'm just going to do law, 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 law. The first place you look in dealing with temptation is not law. You look to Christ who fulfilled the law for you. He Christ is able to help you. Christ is able to help those that are being tempted, for He Himself was tempted. Now don't mistake me, I'm not saying that there's not things that we shouldn't do to help us through temptations. I'm just saying those are far less, and they cannot sanctify you. Only Christ can change your heart. Only Christ can dispose grace to you. Start with Christ, because He is a faithful and merciful high priest, accomplishing salvation and offering help for those that are tempted. Now, before we close this, I just want to go back to the word propitiation. Again, it was a difficult word, and I hope you understand it. It means that God's wrath has been appeased in the cross of Christ. But how does that help us right now? Well, the first thing is this should move us to worship, isn't it? Shouldn't it? Knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that Christ suffered in your place, should this not move us to worship? Just asking this question How is God so merciful to us? How is He so gracious to us? And when you try to reflect upon those questions, how could we not respond with praise and worship? How could we not respond with singing? How could we not respond with prayer? How could we not respond with response? That's what worship is. It's a response to God's revelation. Here's the revelation of God. He sent His Son to make propitiation that you might live. That's God's revelation to us right now. How do we respond to it? How could we not live for Him? How could we not see that God is to be of the utmost importance in our life? And there's another aspect of propitiation that should also help us and cause us to reflect. If we, in fact, see that God was wrathful and that propitiation was necessary, propitiation 
causes us to reflect upon the nature of sin. How horrible sin truly is. You know, our view of sin is directly related to our view of God. How you view sin is directly related to how you view God. Let me ask you a couple questions. Do we ever justify sin? This is a small little sin. I'm not talking about a big one. I'm not talking about going murdering. It's just a small little, little itsy bitsy sin. Do we ever justify it as being okay? Do we ever say, I can do this because God's grace. I can sin because God will forgive me. Or do we ever say something, it's okay for me to sin here because I'm forgiven? We haven't thought about propitiation, have we? We haven't thought about who our God is. You see that idea, there is either a gross misunderstanding of God in such thinking, or it is the thinking of one that has truly not experienced the grace of God. And finally, propitiation is good news. It's the best news you'll ever hear. If you are in Christ, you stand forgiven. And Christ stands ready to help you. May we live in light of what Christ has accomplished for his people because he took on flesh to be a high priest, to make propitiation. He is for us, and now the Father takes pleasure in us. Do you hear that? The wrathful God that we're warned about? Because Christ made propitiation for the sins of his people, the Father now takes pleasure in you just as he would his Son. The Father sees you as he sees his perfect sinless Son. He accomplished this for his people. But if you do not know Christ, the reality is is that you're not forgiven. If you do not know Christ, the reality is you are under God's wrath and will remain under it eternally so unless you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because unless propitiation has been made for your sins, your sins remain and God remains wrathful. But propitiation is the good news. Propitiation is the good news that you can look to Christ, stand forgiven, and God will be for you. Just as he is for his son. That is the good news of propitiation, which is the good news of the gospel. That the wrath of God has been satisfied in the death of Christ. Where the death of death took place. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ that he made propitiation on behalf of the sins of his people and that we sinful people may stand forgiven. We may stand forgiven and receive your grace and help. Father, I pray 
that we would reflect upon the wonder of the gospel. We would live lives that are set free in Christ. I pray, Father, for those that may be struggling with temptation, that by your grace they would continually look to Christ. I pray for those that may not know Christ, that you would call them now that they may know your name. We pray your grace to descend upon us now, Father, in transformation, sanctification, and we pray for any that may not know Christ, that they would come to confess his name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.